It's great to be here this morning. Um, if you were a street reporter, and you went on basically any street anywhere in the world, and uh, you asked John or Jane Doe the question, what is the purpose of life? What do you think they would say? Well, since I didn't have the chance to go on Main Street in Riverton, I asked Google. And of course, Google always has the answer. And so this is what Google said. And of course, it gave many answers. And these are among the common answers that people in our world would say if you ask them the question, what is the purpose of life? Of course, you're going to find those that will say, well, the purpose of life is to be successful or to feel loved. Some would say to have a positive impact on other people's lives. The most common thing you probably hear, hear anywhere in the world is the purpose of life is to be happy. That's the purpose of life. Or to have fame and fortune, some may say. I think, um, as I went to Google, these are some of the answers they gave me. The purpose of life is to leave a net positive. So your life, you give more than you actually uh, take away. Another person said this, to become a true person and live a true life. And another, to explore and experience. And a very common one, the purpose of life is self-actualization. That is, to become who you want to be. Well, those are the kind of the answers you get from people on the street. But what if you went into a, um, a more spiritual place or philosophical place? What might they say? And I asked that question. Here they said this. The purpose of life is to, make our, to take our learnings to the next life, whatever that means. Someone said this one. This one's brilliant. The purpose of life is to understand that what is really isn't. You can ponder that one for a while, and you probably will get nowhere, but keep trying. Someone wrote this, and this person is an energy healer. This is what they said. The purpose of life is to love and let what makes you soulfully happy guide you. That's a common answer. Or here's another one. The purpose of life is to do everything you can to better prepare yourself for the next stage, which is enlightenment. Good, but I didn't get far enough, so I thought I'd go to the humanist websites. And this is what they said. The purpose of life is to lead an ethical life of personal fulfillment and aspire to the greater good. That's nice. Of course, our Declaration of Independence tells us what the purpose of this nation is. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You knew that one. And of course, you can probably expect that religions all over the world, every religion answers the question, what is the purpose of life? And so if you are a Hindu, the purpose of life is to achieve dharma. That is to act virtuously or righteously, to pursue wealth and prosperity, to obtain enjoyment from life, and ultimately to arrive at enlightenment with the gods. That's the purpose of life. If you're Jewish, they would say, well, the purpose of life is to, to obey and to embody the law of God. That's a good purpose. 
If you're Muslim, that's clear because the very name Muslim means submit. So the purpose of life is to submit your life to Allah. That's the purpose of life. And we could go on. Well, here's the Dalai Lama. I believe that the purpose of life is to be happy. From the very core of our being, we desire contentment. So the Dalai Lama, a very famous person in our world, says the purpose of life is to be happy at the core of your being. Well, how would you answer the question? What if I asked you, what is the purpose of life? You would come up with probably some of these same answers. But my, my question today is, what does the Bible say is the purpose of life? Now perhaps you've, uh, if any of you have a, a background from the Episcopalian Church or the Anglican Church, they've answered the question. Because those churches from back in the, from hundreds of years ago have what's called a catechism. And the first question and answer is this. Basically, what is the purpose of life? That's the first question. And the answer is to, do anyone know? Any Anglicans here? Any Episcopalians? To, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what they say. What is the chief purpose of human beings? Why do we live here on this earth? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And basically that's pretty much what Paul is going to tell us this morning as we turn to Romans chapter 5 verses 1 to 11 because he is going to define for us now what is the good life. And obviously what we want to live is a good life. And what does a good life look like? What is the purpose of life? As you know, we live in a culture today in which it's an incredible polarization. We have deep, deep, deeply different views as to on politics and on sexuality and you name it, on almost everything. And you might ask yourself the question, where does this come from? Why are we as a society so at each other's throats all the time. Why? What's wrong with us? And I think the real question is, I mean the real answer is that one of the main reasons why we are so intensely polarized as a country is because we have very, very different answers to the question, what is the purpose of life? Because if, in fact, as this is the most common one in our culture today, the purpose of life is to be happy. And what that means is happy now with the 70, 80, whatever years of life you're given. You, the purpose of your life is to be happy. You. Because sociologists tell us that our number one value as Americans, our, the most important thing to all Americans by sociologists, is we're radically ontological individualism. The most important thing to Americans is me, my rights, my life, my happiness. That's the most important thing. And that is an answer to the purpose of life. The, most, the purpose of my life is that I live my years on this planet happily. And if I don't get that. I should do whatever it takes to live a happy life. Well, I think you probably know that God, has, God loves us to be happy. 
But that is not the primary purpose of our life. And so let's look at today what is. Now in Romans chapter 5 is um, a passage that enters, we enter a new, uh, a new section of the book of Romans. How do you know that? Well, because it starts with the word, therefore. And whenever the word therefore is there, you've got to ask yourself the question, what is it there for? Why is it there? Well, it's always trying to connect with what came before. And remember, the first three chapters of Romans, he, pa he paints this airtight case that none of us, in and of ourselves, have, our, have the right to stand before God justly, because no one has right standing with God. We've all failed, all of us. So we're all on the same ground. But then, those incredible words, but now God has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves by bringing Jesus here. And Jesus, by his death on the cross, has given us the opportunity for him to have taken all of the penalty for our sin, all the wrath of God, paid for all of our slavery, and given us the offer of not only a good life, but eternal life by faith. And then remember last week, he showed how the great one of the greatest human beings that has ever lived, one of the top five human beings out of the 14 billion that have lived on this planet, his name is Father Abraham, who is the father to over one half of the world's population. Right this day, Father Abraham was justified by faith. He was not justified by his good deeds. He was not justified by his religious acts. He was not justified by the fact that he didn't break laws because he did. He was justified by faith. And now, Therefore, what are the results? What are the results for a person who, because of what Jesus did for us, that we're going to celebrate this morning in communion, what are the results of God declaring us to be innocent in his sight, for us to have right standing with God? What are the results of that? Well, let's see what he says. In the first few verses, actually in the first two, he is going to give us two of the incredible results that come from having been justified by faith. Here's what he says. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So, he begins with this, okay? Remember the first three chapters of Romans? It says, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of all kinds of things that, are, that characterize us as human beings, we are not in right standing with God. We're enemies of God. We're at enmity with God. We are the recipients of the wrath, the righteous wrath of God. But because of what Christ has done for us, our status has changed from being enemies of God to being at peace with God. We have right standing with God. Wow. The word the Bible uses for this is reconciliation. Reconciliation is a word which, which means that when two people are fighting against each other, at enmity with each other, at loggerheads with each other, they become friends. And what Paul says is one of the results 
of what Jesus has done for us and our accessing that through faith is that we become at peace with God. And so one of the answers that we would as Christians give to the question, what is the purpose of life? One of the purposes of life is to live a life at peace with God. That's part of why we're here. And that is an enormous privilege. But it's better than that. Because it says, not only do we have, because of what Jesus has done for us, do, are we now in a place where we can be at peace with God. We don't need to be afraid of God. We don't, are not the recipients of the wrath of God. He's not the person with the baseball bat. He loves us. We're at peace with God. And it's even better. Now he's opened the door for us to have access. And the word access here means the ability to enter into the presence of royalty. And at the end of the sermon today, I'm going to tell a story about that. We have now access to grace. We are now, a door has been opened to this incredible treasure room, and this treasure room is full of God's grace. We have access. Now remember, access for Jewish people is incredibly important because they were denied access. If you were a a Gentile, you were denied access into most of the temple court. You couldn't go in there. And 99% of the world's population are Gentiles. So 99% of all the world's population can't even go near. Now, if you were a Jew, you could get inside a little farther. And if you were a priest, you could get inside a little farther. And if you were the high priest, you could get inside a little farther, but only one day a year. No access. Well, what did God do? If you read your Bible, it says, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was split in two. Now the Holy of Holies was opened up to everybody. Everyone now has access to the presence of God. And then it says, Paul says over and over again, the barrier between Jews and Gentiles has been demolished. There's no barrier anymore. We now have access. We are part of God's family It's an incredible, incredible gift. And because of that, because now we are at peace with God and we have access to grace, we live a life, and this is the main word of this whole section, of hope. We're people of hope. What is the purpose of life? The purpose of life is to live a life full of hope. Hope of what? Hope has to have something you're looking forward to. Hope that one day we will share in the glory of God. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God. And what's our benefit? To enjoy Him forever. So what does God want us to be? What's the purpose of life? To enjoy God forever. Now and forever. Ooh, that's quite a a good purpose. Now, um... Again, if someone, someone wrote this, Warren Wearsby, if you know him, he said, peace with God takes care of the past. He will no longer hold our sins against us. Access to God takes care of the present. We can come to him anytime we need for the help. And hope of the glory of God takes care of the future. One day, we will share in his glory. And so, to answer the question of life, of, of the purpose of life, what is the purpose of life? The purpose of life for a Christian is to have peace with God and the hope of glory. 
Contrast that with the major purpose of life in our world today, namely personal peace and happiness and to glorify my passions and enjoy myself temporarily. That's really the contrast. And that's why we have this huge divide. Part of the reason we have this huge divide in our culture is because we have answered the question of the purpose of life very differently. If you remove God from the equation, you get a very different answer. Because did you see that our purpose of life is centered on God? But you take him from the, away from the picture, what is the purpose of your life? Well, the purpose of your life is, obviously, you want personal peace and happiness. And to pursue your own passions and to enjoy yourself, at least temporarily. Do you see where the difference comes in? Paul's only getting started, because now he ends with, by saying, the, pa- the passage I read, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And I guess as he's writing, he thinks, rejoice. Oh, so people who read this are going to think that Christian life is a Pollyanna life and everything goes nicely for us. Wrong. We are subject to the same kinds of horrible difficulties that everyone else on our planet faces. So he takes off on the word rejoice, and now he uses it in a really weird way. He says, not only do we rejoice that we have the opportunity to share in, the, in a life of peace with God, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Let's see what he says. This is crazy. He says, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Now, why in the world would you rejoice in your sufferings? Now, that doesn't mean you're happy about it. Because remember, happiness is not our goal. Why in the world would you rejoice in your sufferings? Well, he answers the question. Here's why. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character and character hope and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us so a a second purpose of life for we as Christians is we don't live our whole life running as fast and as far away as we can from suffering and we never run to it because we're not idiots But we understand that God has a more important plan for us than giving us a comfortable life. Now, we want a comfortable life. I certainly do, and I think you do too. But there's something more important than having a comfortable life. What is that? Having a life of character. So God's goal is He he wants, He's going to, because, because He loves us, His purpose is that He wants to lovingly Remember, did you see love in that passage? Over and over again. His purpose is he wants to lovingly develop our character because character is very important to God. The development of our character is more important to God than that we live an easy life. Now, of course, most of us in our world, I want an easy life. I want a happy life. I want a comfortable life. I want a rich life. I want a successful life. Good, so do I. But there's something more important. And that is that That we live a life in which we understand that God is in the business of developing our character. And frankly, the only way that character can be developed is through difficulty. 
All success, happiness, money does not develop character. You just look around. You know that quickly. No pain, no gain. That's life. There's never been an athlete in the history of the world that's world class that has not suffered a lot. A lot. It's very painful to be good in anything. Never won. No pain. No gain. No suffering. No character. Because God says, you got, but you got to know that God's not in the business of helping us suffer. Oh, he's, he's, he's in the business of helping us through suffering, but he's not, he doesn't love suffering, nor do we. But we know this, that no matter what comes in our life, if we truly believe that God loves us, which he does, and we're his children, he is using our sufferings to develop something in us that is of inestimably good value. He's trying to develop our character. So our suffering is never meaningless. And ultimately, what he's trying to do to us is he wants us to have a, a more vigorous faith. He wants us to be people of hope. That's what he wants. You see, um, Paul is not a pie-in-the-sky dreamer. I remember seeing this bumper sticker once, make life a little easier with Jesus. And I go, I hope, I didn't see it on your cards, I hope, but I think that's ridiculous. No, life doesn't get easier with Jesus. Sometimes it gets harder. Because God is in the business of developing our character and our hope. That's what he wants to do. So no, life doesn't get easier. It gets better. There is no justification. Being, uh, having peace with God does not make our lives easy. Sometimes it makes it a little difficult. Some years ago, one of the best-selling books, this is maybe 50 years ago, was called The Road Less Traveled. And I'm not sure it's an all-that-good book, but it was very popular. But, but the first lines of the book, the very first, this is how he begins the book, are pretty profound. He says this, Life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. I think God said, yeah, you're right. You know, we start off with the premise, life is easy. Life is a bowl of cherries. Life is all about making me happy and comfortable. Maybe that's Venus or Mars. I don't know, but that's not planet Earth. Life is, is, is difficult. But once you understand that life is difficult, once you really believe that and understand, yes, it is, and God wants to develop our character through difficult things, once you believe that, you think, oh, it's not that hard anymore. I can make it. Because we have hope. We're the people of hope. Ah, but it gets better. Our purpose of our life is to have peace with God. We have, we have access into the presence of God. We, get to, we, we live in a life of hope that we will one day be a part of the glory of God. We're people who know that God is in the business of developing our character so that we can be people of value, not just to ourselves, but to other people. A person with character is somebody who's extremely valuable to other people. God wants us to be valuable to others. We live our lives primarily for Him, but maybe secondarily for others, for the benefit of other people. That's the purpose of our life. 
But then the third thing is, okay, how does God want us to live our lives? Oh, it's nice to know we have peace with God. That, that's, that's really, really nice. And uh, it's nice that God is in the business of using difficulties to develop our character because he loves us. That's nice too. But what's he trying to do? What he's trying to do is to transfer that understanding that he loves us. He loves us so much that he gave his son to die for us. He wants that understanding of his love and grace to be translated into our lives so that we live lives of grace and gratitude. That's what the purpose of our life is that, is that we are people of grace and we are people of gratitude. We recognize that everything we have is a gift from God. Everything. And we're people of gratitude. In fact, What's so often true about Christians is we grumble all the time. That could not be farther from a Christian. When people come into any congregation of Christian people, they should say, whoa, what's wrong with those nuts? They're so grateful to God for everything. Are they crazy? No. No, we're the recipients of grace. We know that God gave to us things we never deserved, and in light of that, we live lives of gratitude and grace to others. Well, let's see how Paul writes it. This is verses 6, and eight, six to 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless or weak, Christ died for the good people. It says that. Christ died for the good people, not the bad ones, the good ones. No, it doesn't say that. It says Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still nice, Christ died for us. Is that what? No. While we were still Sinners, Christ died for us. Someone wrote this. Human love, at its best, will motivate a person to give his or her life for a truly good person. Many of us in this room, as, pa as parents, would give our lives for our children. That is not uncommon. Not only would many of us do it, many people have done it. That's not uncommon. But... Christ, sent by God, died not for righteous people, not even for good people, but for rebellious and undeserving people. Therefore, God's love is of far greater in its magnitude and dependability than even the greatest of human love. There are human beings, many of them, these are our precious soldiers that we honored last week on Memorial Day. There are hundreds of thousands and millions of soldiers, men and women, who have willingly given their lives to purchase our freedom. And we don't thank them enough. Many times we will die for a good person or a good cause. That's, very no that's not unusual. It's heroic, but not unusual. But you don't drive for people who hate your guts. You don't die for people who, who, are, who want nothing to do with you. You don't do that. 
But God demonstrates his love for us while we were, did you pick up on? In the book of Romans. God died for us while we were wicked. God died for us while we were powerless. Jesus died for us while we were ungodly. Jesus died for us while we were sinners. Jesus died for us while we were enemies. And God died, Jesus died for us while we were unrighteous. Those are all quotes directly from the text. The, the brilliance of God's love is he's not dying for people who like him. He dies for people who hate his guts. Who does that? You see, one of the great reasons for the polarization of our culture again today is because we differ on our definition of love. Many people in our society say, well, the, pur the purpose of life is to find love. That is, feelings of affection and attraction to people, to, to people that we like. And that is part of love. We, want, we are affectionate toward and we, we have attachments with people that we like. But when God describes love, it is self-sacrificing oneself for the best interests of people who may hate us. That's love. That's a whole different purpose uh, to life. Many people in our society today would say living a life of self-actualization, like loving yourself and asserting yourself and satisfying yourself and achieving yourself is the goal of life. But we would say, no, the goal of life is to live a life of grace and graciousness and gratitude in light of the love of God. That's the purpose of life. Well, he ends with the big word in this whole text, which is reconciliation. It began with peace with God, and now it ends with reconciliation. This is verses 9 through 11. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life? Not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, Paul is now arguing in a typical Jewish fashion from what's called the lesser to the greater. Namely, if God saved us while we were enemies, he will surely keep us now that we are his children. So we can live in the assurance of the love of God because if he saved us while we were his enemies, now we're his kids. Of course, he loves us deeply and greatly. A man named Douglas Moo wrote this. Paul encourages us by making it absolutely clear that the verdict of justification that we experience in this life will be confirmed in the life to come. Those who have been justified will be saved. So he said. So what is the purpose of life? Maybe people will say, well, live your best life now. That's the purpose of life. Or, but we would say, live in light of your re reconciliation with God now and forever. People would say, well, the best life now is just to, to, to kind of become accepting of your death. We say, no, no. The purpose of life is to understand that God, that we are God's children and live in light of that. Well, what's the purpose of life? 
Is the purpose of life personal peace and happiness? Or peace with God and the hope of glory? Is the purpose of life learning to love yourself and pursue creature comforts? That's what many do. But God would say, no. God wants, God is interested in the loving development of our character. Well, is the purpose of life to become self-actualized, to be all that you can be? Well, that's wonderful, but God wants us to live gracious, gratitude-filled lives in light of his love. We live our lives for other people because we have been loved at great cost. What is the purpose of life? Is it to live your best life now or to experience reconciliation with God now and forever? Never an end. That's what God says. The same man who I just mentioned wrote this. Did you notice that in this text of Scripture we have the great trio, faith, hope, and love? Here's what he says. Faith enables us to receive and maintain our relationship with God through Christ. Hope focuses our attention on the grand climax of our faith when all the uncertainties and difficulties of this life give way to the glory of being with our Savior forever. And love reminds us of our obligations to live as God's people in the present, redeemed but not yet glorified. Well, one of the greatest blessings of being justified by faith as I noticed before, is that we have access into the presence of God. So let me tell you a true story, as I conclude, of someone who had access into the presence of a king, and I was there. This happened in the middle 1970s. I was living in Swaziland, Africa at the time. I was a school teacher. I was employed by the Swazi government, and I was a teacher of high school juniors and seniors, and I taught African history to Africans and biology. I taught both of them. One of my students, whose name was Mahbehla Tlamini, he was one of the king's sons. He was a prince. Don't be impressed. The king had um, over 200 children and more than 70 wives. And Mahabehla was one of those. I think he was the 69th son of his father. But he was not a good student. He was a terrible student. But he was a very, very kind young man. He really was nice. We liked him a lot. Well, one of the person, the pers- I was a teacher, but the man who was the headmaster of our school was a missionary. His name was Jerry. And when Jerry came as the headmaster, one of his dreams was that one day he could meet the king of, of Swaziland. Now, Swaziland's king at that time was the oldest reigning monarch in the world. Maybe he's been eclipsed now by Queen Elizabeth. I don't know. But he had reigned longer than any monarch had ever lived up to that time. He was an old man, as I said, over 70 wives. But he was revered. He was a good man. His name was King Sobuza. And Jerry wanted to meet King Sobuza. It was one of his desires. But that was not likely to happen because... Only certain dignitaries could see the king. And even the United States ambassador had only visited the king once when he presented his credentials. The king did not associate with many people at all, and he never took pictures with anyone except other royalty, like Princess Margaret. I think there were pictures of him with Princess Margaret and other 
royalty from around the world because he was a king. Well, Jerry mentioned to Mahabetla in passing, he said, Mahabetla, would it ever be possible to, uh, to meet your father, the king? And of course, Mahabetla said, no. And then Jerry asked a number of the Swazi people, is it ever possible for someone like me to visit the king? And they just laughed at him and said, no, you're a commoner, you're a foreigner. You can't see the king. You only can see the king if you're invited into his presence. It's very rare for anyone to visit the king. Well, I was there teaching on November the 30th, 1976. And all of a sudden, these police Range Rovers showed up at the school. They said, where is Jerry Harpool? Well, he was in another town at the time. They said they gave uh, this edict. They said, His Majesty the King demands his presence at the Royal Palace tonight at 7 o'clock. And this was in the afternoon. And we were at least an hour away from the, the, the capital city. Well, when Jerry came back and they saw this royal edict from the Swazi police, of course, you don't say no to a king. He says, what do we do? Well, they said, first of all, when you go see a king, you can't go empty-handed. You have to bring some gifts. He said, well, we, were, we were out in the bush. There was no gifts. So they got together a bushel basket of beans. <laughs> and, that's all the, and, and, and a stalk of bananas. We had bananas. So they stuffed them in his old VW Bug with South African art license plates, of all things. This was in the time of apartheid. Terrible thing to do. And then she said, well, 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 how do we dress? They said, well, dress in your finest clothes. And they said, um, well, should we bring our camera? I said, no, no, don't bring a camera because you're not allowed to take pictures with the king. So he threw it in anyways and took it. So right at 7 o'clock, he and his wife got to the palace and they presented their credentials, even though the guards looked at their car and said, uh, uh, I don't know if we're going to let you in here. He got in at 7 o'clock and they waited till 9 o'clock. Had to wait there two hours. And finally, at 9 o'clock, out of the throne room, out of the throne room came the king's son, Mahabela, and one of the old advisors for the king, a man in about his 80s, both barefoot. And they said, the king will see you now. And so Mahabela and this elderly minister, as they, opened, they went through the door, they immediately got down on the ground and started crawling they were not allowed to lift their head at all in the presence of the king, except they, when the king spoke, they went, which means praise to our Lord, the king. But they stayed, crawled on the floor. And Jerry said he didn't know what to do. So he and his wife, they kind of walked in like this. They, they didn't know, are we supposed to crawl like the, this old man and like, a, um, like Mahabela? We don't know. So they kind of walked in, and the king was very gracious. He was in his traditional outfit, but he, he was educated in England, so he spoke very good English. He said, no, stand up, please, and you sit in this chair, and you sit in this chair. And they talked for about 15 minutes. And, and then the king said, did you bring a camera? The king asked. They said, well, yeah, we did. We, we did bring one. They said, could you get that camera? Let's take some pictures. So here the king took pictures. I've seen them with, with Jerry's wife, Jan, and then pictures with Jerry, with the king. And they left. And of course, the next day they came back to our school and stood in front of all of our students, hundreds of students, and they told the story. And Jerry was a wonderful missionary. He said, as he told the story, and the students were just in awe to think that their principal, an American, 
missionary, a commoner, not only had got into the presence of the king, but pictures with our king. Jerry turned the story and he said, do you know how I got access into the presence of the king? And he said, there's one way. My access to the king came through his beloved son. Because he loved his son, Mahabedla, it was the request from his beloved son that provided me access into the presence of the king. And we too. We have been invited into the presence of the king of kings. Not the king of just a little tiny kingdom in Africa. But we have been invited into the presence of the holy king of kings of kings. How? Well, because of his beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who paid for our access, who opened the doors for our access, who provided an entrance, and he even gave us clothes. He clothes us in his righteousness. He says, I, you can't go into the presence of the king looking like that. He clothes us in his righteousness. So when we are in the presence of God, he sees people who are perfect, because we are the recipients of the righteousness of Jesus. And how did we get that righteousness? Did we earn it? No. Did we merit it? No. Did we go to church for it? No. Did we say some words for it? No. We got access because of a death, a very costly death. One human being out of 14 billion that's been on this planet actually lived a sinless life. Only one. It was our Lord Jesus Christ. He was brutally treated, ultimately crucified, but not as an assassin. He was not assassinated. He was not martyred. He gave his life willingly. The perfect human being, God in human flesh, gave his life for ours so that he could offer freely to all human beings his righteousness as a gift if we will accept it. And hopefully all of us have accepted that. But guess what? We forget all the time. So Jesus said, I know what you're like. You're going to forget what I did for you. You're going to go on happily with your lives and you'll forget what I did for you. So I want you often, often to stop and reflect afresh on what I did when I gave my body and I gave my blood for your salvation. And that's why we're going to do what we about, we're about to do. That little piece of bread is a representation of the body of Christ. And as you partake it, remember, this was costly. The most costly act in human history when Jesus gave his life. And that grape juice that looks like blood is a reminder that he not only suffered in his body, but he gave his life for our lives. And then, of course... God raised him from the dead. Let's pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the, the gift of life through Jesus. Now as we partake of these simple elements, may your Holy Spirit bring back to us in power what you did in demonstrating your love for us while we were yet sinners. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.